Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the latest episode of our podcast, I interviewed Michael Cardamone, Managing Director and General Partner at Accelerprise, a SaaS-focused accelerator with programs in New York City, San Francisco, and Melbourne, Australia. Michael was an early employee on the business development team at Box and more recently led business development and partner marketing at Academics Direct. In addition to his current role at Accelerprise, Michael is an active angel investor and personally advises a number of startups. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like Michael's background and his experience with the family business, what it was like working as an early member of the Box team, the details on Accelerprise, Lots of great advice for founders, like how they should approach sales and their pricing strategy, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. This is our third podcast interview in New York City. So if you're just discovering us, don't miss our other interviews. I've had some great conversations with Graham Brown, who is a partner at Lara Hippo, and Alex Duzay, the co-founder and CEO of Ollie. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Michael. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So I always like to go way back. So let's uh, you know, talk you know, foundation level stuff. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York in a suburb outside of Albany, New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you uh, were thinking about you know, kind of going into college and uh, you went to Syracuse and studied mechanical engineering. What, you know, people don't have a career plan always going into college, but what was kind of the general thought of, of studying that? Um, yeah, it was kind of, uh, it was pretty random. I, I actually, so I grew up in a very like entrepreneurial family. My dad was a lawyer, but then ended up having his own business that was a national small business association. And so I grew up and my mom worked there and my, you know, my brothers, you know, my brothers and I grew up kind of working there and working with the family. So I grew up in and around kind of business. Like we talked about the business at family dinners. Like it was very much uh, a business culture, but I, I really liked kind of math and science and growing up and was pretty good at it. And, um, and then I think very randomly, like along the way, uh, somehow got it stuck in my head that I wanted to like design roller coasters and things like that. I think I had met someone who did that and I just thought it was a fascinating, uh, I was like, oh, how fun would that be when you're, you know, 16 and uh, like going to amusement parks. <laughs> so that's, that's one job profession. I think I was talking to a neighbor recently that would stress me out. You think of the precise yeah. measurements you have to make for those, the, the way that roller coasters operate now, like I, I would just yeah. be so petrified that I made the calculation wrong. <laughs> yeah. I was not thinking about any of those things at 16. All I, all I was thinking about was like, I, I would get to test ride the roller coasters that I designed. Um, but I also, when I talked to people, you know, felt like having an engineering degree would, would be a good foundation for whatever I wanted to do next, whether that was engineering or business and, um, would help with like, you know, all the things that you hear about with an engineering degree, just like analytical thinking and math and all that kind of stuff. So, um, decided to do that. Uh, although I would say fairly quickly into my college career realized that I did not want to be a mechanical engineer um, long term. Uh, ended up having a minor in like entrepreneurship and business and um, and then actually went and worked for my 
family business for a couple of years out of college um, and helped like open a New York office and expand some of the like partnership deals we were doing for the business and helped grow the business a bit. And then, uh, and then decided to go back to business school um, after that in New York. And like, if you could talk a little bit more about your family business, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it, but what, like, what, what was the business in itself? Like what, what did you guys do? Yeah. So we were a, a national small business association. So basically small businesses would pay dues to become a member. And then we would leverage the group buying power to negotiate discounts on services like payroll, credit card processing, office supplies, like basically products and services that small businesses needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time associations could also get special pricing on health insurance. So we were also all like licensed health insurance brokers and uh, would then sell health insurance at a discount to small businesses, which was frankly like a big driver of why people would sign up and a big driver of revenue for the business. Um, nowadays, I don't think associations get any sort of special pricing on health insurance. So that kind of competitive advantage went away there. Um, but yeah, I mean, they built the business on direct mail and partnerships and um, it was pretty interesting to see that time, like before there was like digital acquisition. Uh, it, you know, I spent a lot of time stuffing envelopes that would go out uh, <laughs> in direct mail to, yeah. So, um, but yeah, that was the that was the business. And it sounds like this was a good foundation for your career because I'm assuming you're wearing different hats depending on the day. Yeah, I mean, especially I, I, before, you know, what, growing up, like, you know, we, I just did whatever, like, whatever needed to be done, data entry, filing, stuffing envelopes, you know, my dad would let us like sit in on meetings and listen in to learn. But um, I, w- I wouldn't say we were, uh, I was doing anything that required a lot of thought and rigor. But I would say after college, when we opened a New York office, then yeah, we got to be involved in kind of everything, like negotiating partnerships and, you know, uh, what the deals would look like and referral fees and like had to get licensed as a health insurance broker and kind of learn everything there was about selling health insurance and um, spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different small business owners about what they needed and, you know, how they were thinking about things. And so we ran a lot of events for small businesses. So yeah, I got to, got to wear a lot of different hats and, and learn a lot pretty quickly and frankly had kind of way more responsibility than I probably should have as a 21 year old who just graduated from college. And I, I, I get a question occasionally, if, you know, people ask advice, you know, should I go to, to B school, right? What are the, the pros and cons? So what was your thought process of going back to B school at, a, at Columbia? Yeah. Uh, for me, it was, you know, I had worked for my family business and I was debating about whether I wanted to kind of take over the family business and keep running with that or, uh, or get into something that had higher growth potential in tech. And I figured in both cases, going back to business school would be helpful. I think in hindsight, like I definitely could have gotten into tech without having gone to business school. Um, but I would say it sounds cliche, but I would say the network I built in business school has been incredibly helpful, uh, for my career. Um, and frankly, like, directly like a really good ROI on the cost (laughs) from Mm -hmm. angel investments I made through Columbia connections. And, uh, you know, I got my job at box through a Columbia connection. Um, so like from a, 
purely financial standpoint, like really good ROI for me personally, which was a, a function of just the network I built. Um, and so, you know, probably partially luck, but partially like when you go to a good business school, there's a lot of impressive people with a lot of good connections and networks and experiences that, um, you know, if you take, if you take the, the mindset of like wanting to meet a lot of people and learn from a lot of people um, and build meaningful relationships. Like I think you'll end up getting a lot out of business school. And I think that, you know, the content was helpful for sure, but, but I wouldn't say like, uh, you know, absolutely necessary to do what I've done in my career. And you highlighted that you joined box after um, completing your MBA what stage was the company at? Obviously, people know of Box now, and obviously has you know gone public. And what was the stage of the company at that point? Yeah, so they had just raised. I think what was at at the time called the Series A, which would probably be more of like a seed these days. Um, and they were you know very much kind of like uh, still the mindset of being a consumer focused company, although. Uh, Dropbox had recently kind of come out with their sync product and box didn't have that. And I think that was like starting to become a, a key feature for a lot of consumers. And so box was like just at the point where they were starting to think about shifting focus to B2B. Um, and that's when I got brought in as the first like BD hire, I don't know, it was 25 or 26 people at the time um, to help, help with like building out partnerships and, channel relationships to create awareness and distribution for, uh, you know, in the SMB market, essentially. Um, and so that was, that was my role. And that was kind of the stage of the company when I joined. And was that their plan as far as growing the enterprise market? Let's, let's, you know, go through channels for uh, the SMB market. Like I'm assuming they probably had a direct sales force too, for some of the larger companies or. Yeah. So we had a direct sale. I mean, when I was, when I was there, when I first started, like, Box was not selling into big enterprises. Big okay. enterprises were like not aware of kind of cloud storage at the time or not, not very much. <laughs> we spent a lot of time having to educate people on like the, the benefit of the cloud. Like, you know, Salesforce had obviously been around for a little while, but, but like, you know, the idea of kind of cloud storage versus using like, you know, your own kind of on-prem servers and everything was, was pretty, pretty new at the time. And so it was mostly... Uh, SMBs and so we would look at like who are the SMBs that were like more forward-thinking like maybe they were already on Google Apps and using other kind of more cloud native type of applications um, and then what verticals were like content heavy so like law firms and design firms and places like that and then where can we create partnerships to either get distribution into those into those markets or create awareness and credibility in those markets um, so like in the law space, like we did a partnership with the American Bar Association, purely not necessarily to get distribution. We didn't expect a lot of direct distribution from it, but it helped create a lot of credibility when the direct sales team was talking to a law firm and we were a you know, recommended vendor by the ABA. So we would do things like that. We did a deal with Salesforce. Um, and then, you know, we wanted to test like, you know, the channel was very like, you know, SaaS companies were barely around, let alone selling through the channel at the time. But there were some kind of managed service providers and, and, you know, channel folks who were starting to resell Google apps and other cloud cloud providers. And so, uh, you know, we tried kind of building out some of those channel relationships to see if we could get distribution 
through that. So through that effort, worked pretty closely with our direct sales team as well. So this was your first foray into the, the tech industry. So how did you get up to speed on, you know, this type of role in a company that was venture backed and I'm assuming in super hyper growth mode? Yeah, I mean, I talked to a lot of people uh, um, to learn as much as I could. Uh, so the person who introduced me was a VC. And so I spent a lot of time talking to him and he, I asked him to introduce me to other people. Like basically, I just tried to talk to as many people as I could through like Syracuse and Columbia networks and then just like second degree connections who are already in tech just to get up to speed and learn as quickly as possible. Um, looking back on it, I was certainly like very green, uh, going into that, um, compared to obviously, you know, what I've learned now having been in tech now for the last nine or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I basically just, you know, tried to meet as many people and learn from as many people as possible. Stuck your nose in it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny. I showed up to box for an interview. You know, I, I only knew New York city and you know had no idea of the tech world so i literally i showed up to my interview in box in a full a full suit <laughs> and, I, and i remember i remember going in and aaron uh when i interviewed with aaron you know we we were interviewing and you could tell he had this like befuddled look on his face the whole time <laughs> and i was like i thought i was just not answering the questions correctly and then afterwards he was like so uh you going to the prom after this interview or what's going on? <laughs> That's awesome. i think he, I think you then made me take my, my tie and jacket off for the rest of the interviews. Um, but it was, it was a pretty good introduction to the tech world. That's a classic story. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I've never met Aaron, but I've certainly seen him speak on, uh, you know, multiple times on, you know, different conferences that I watch the videos on YouTube. And he just seems like a very, I mean, you just watch, you know, his, uh, you know, his Twitter stream He's just a very uh, witty, uh, funny guy. <laughs> he really, he definitely really is. Um, yeah, he was great. He, he was a very like, uh, quirky, but very charismatic and like knew how to kind of keep the energy level high in the office. And, yeah. um, yeah, was very witty and, and smart. So what did you do next? Yeah. So I, uh, I left box probably sooner than I should have. I had an, another friend who had invested in this company academics direct and they had been trying to recruit me for a while. And, um, you know, I finally, they finally gave me an offer that was hard to kind of not take. Um, and so I ended up jumping over to academics direct and it was an interesting dynamic. You know, box was like led by Aaron and, uh, Dylan and like a number of their friends who were young, like they were, you know, 22, 23, 24 at the time. Academics Direct was like a different, you know, the executives were like, you know, Harvard Business School and they're like 30s and 40s, like very kind of seasoned uh, operators. And so I, I felt like it would be an interesting dynamic to learn from from them. And I, and I did learn a lot, although, you know, in hindsight, obviously Box did ended up doing like, phenomenally well and I vested some and can't complain, but, um, you know, certainly left a lot of money on the table by leaving when I did, um, with academics direct, uh, you know, I think the other, the other thing I didn't realize was it was a basically a lead generation business. A lot of the revenue was like transactional. There was a software component to it as well and some services. And I think at the time I didn't understand 
the nuances of like, how do you build equity value and how like with a SaaS company and recurring revenue, like the multiple on revenue is just a lot higher. And if you're growing well, like you can build and accumulate equity value a lot faster than if your revenue comes from like transactional and services based revenue, um, which a lot of, a lot of it did at academic track. So we still saw really good growth there. Like when I joined, I think it was about four or 5 million a year in revenue. And um, when I left four years later, we were doing 25 million a year in revenue and pretty profitable. Um, and I ran partnerships for them, which accounted for a pretty large chunk of the revenue for the company. So still a really good learning experience, still met a lot of really good people. Um, but yeah, that, so that's what I did next for, for about three and a half, four years. Um, and then I left, when I left Academics Direct, I was, I had started doing a little bit of angel investing, um, and had started doing some like advising and consulting to some early stage startups and just really liked working with the early stage founders and really liked the investing side side of things and started socializing the idea with some people in my network that I had met along the way, like Nick Mehta, who's the CEO of Gainsight, and um, Anthony Kanata, who's now the CMO at Gainsight, but at the time was also an early employee at Box with me, um, and some other people about the idea of doing a SaaS-focused accelerator in San Francisco. Like there were a ton of generalist accelerators out there, like YC and 500 and everyone. Um, but there were really only like three or four in the country focused on SaaS. So I started kind of consulting for a number of startups just to like pay the bills and then got connected to Acceleprise, which was one of the accelerators that existed focused on SaaS. They were based out in Washington, D.C., just to kind of learn about their experience and hear what they were doing. Um, those conversations ended up evolving to like, why don't I license their brand, but I'm going to raise a separate fund in San Francisco with different partners and running it independently. And, you know, I had barely, I had done a, a couple angel investments, but, you know, didn't really have a track record looking back on it, like probably had no business raising a fund, uh, but was naive to think I could do it. Um, and, and once I got like a critical massive you know, really good people who had made money building software companies like Nick and Teen Zuo from Zuora and Rowan Trollope, who's now the CEO of Five9, and then like my old boss at Box, Karen Appleton. Um, I, I was able to kind of pull it together, pull enough together to kind of do a first close. Uh, you know, one of the partners from Excel Prize in DC put some money into our fund, but we ran it kind of pretty independently, separate fund, separate partners. Um, and, you know, over time, actually, the guys in D.C. all started companies that are doing pretty well. And so they actually decided not to continue running it in D.C. So I've kind of taken over the brand now. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of how Excel Prize got started in San Francisco and how it's kind of, you know, I, and I'm happy to share more about how it's evolved over over the last, that was about three and a half, four years ago now. Um, but that first fund was uh, three and a half million, mostly from um, kind of high net worths who had made money building SaaS companies. So when you, you know, obviously you raise the capital, but now you have to build a, you know, a program, right. Of, you know, you know, having companies believe that they can get value out of, um, you know, this accelerator. So how did you build the foundation of that in terms of the program mentorship and all the other things that uh, companies expect? Yeah. So I talked to a lot of, founders who went through other accelerators just to get a sense of like what worked what didn't work what, what was the most helpful for them like what cadence of programming did they like the best what sort of content did they like the best and really started to get a sense of of those sort of things from a lot of founders who had been through other accelerators 
And I think the biggest thing, biggest takeaway for me was a lot of these founders just didn't have experience in go to market and marketing and sales and acquiring customers. And so, um, and, and I felt like that, like being able to get early traction and being able to be a CEO who can sell uh, was going to then be pretty highly correlated to being able to raise money. So I focused a lot of our programming and content and mentors around kind of the go to market marketing piece of it versus like the fundamental, you know, things you need to do to set up a company. Like we have some of that, but we're mostly working with companies where they've already started their company. They've got all the like fundamental building blocks in, in place. They've got some early version of a product that's like in market and maybe some early customers playing around with it and they really need help. Then how do you go from like zero to your first kind of five to 10 customers or your first, you know, 200 K in ARR to then make, you know, have a good shot at raising, raising a seed round. And so built the program around that was lucky enough to have a lot of really good operators who were involved as LPs who then also got involved as mentors and then was able to kind of build out from that core group um, through their network. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of work. It was just me for the first two years. I think I was running it. Um, and so I was doing, a little bit of everything uh, and leaning on my network pretty heavily. And so, you know, immensely grateful for how much time and energy people uh, around me put in to, to help get it off the ground. Uh, you don't, no one graduates with a degree in sales. How do you, uh, how do you train or how do you explain sales to an entrepreneur that needs to learn that piece of the equation? Yeah. Well, first of all, to your point, I think it like is it boggles my mind that more colleges don't teach sales. Agreed. Like it's just I don't understand it. That I think you'll sense. see it over time. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for us, like so we you know, a lot of it was just we would bring in mentors and I would lean on my experience around um, around sales to help coach through it. And, you know, there's nuances for every company and depending on what size companies you're selling into and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, for us, it's all about like identifying at a very, very high level, like who's your ideal customer profile, who within that customer is going to be the buyer and like what, what do they care about? Like what are the KPIs they're measured on that you're then going to impact? And I think it's simple things like that where founders don't really think about, you know, they think about like, well, we're solving this problem and here's all the features we have. And it's really all about like who's going to buy it and why are they going to buy it? And do they actually have the budget and like what KPIs that they get comped on? Are you actually impacting for them? Because if you're not like, why are they going to have urgency to buy it or why are they going to prioritize that? And like really understanding that. And then, you know, things like, you know, trying to find people who are more influencers in your little kind of niche initial ideal customer profile. Uh, maybe they're people who speak at conferences or, um, you know, who are just like, you know, write content and blogs and people follow them because if you can get some of those people as early adopters of your, your thing, it'll help create credibility as you're selling into more companies that look like that one. Um, so just a lot of little things like that, but it, you know, really depends on, you know, whether you're trying to build like more of a self-serve engine to SMBs or more of an outbound sales effort to like mid-market and enterprise. But, um, but yeah, it was really just leaning on learnings we had had at Box that I had had at Box and, uh, you know, academics direct, and then also just like leaning on our mentor network. And, 
and now, you know, more recently for our second fund, brought on a partner uh, whose name is Whitney. Um, actually, her last name is Sales, ironically enough. Uh, she was like one of our top sales mentors in San Francisco. And so, um, you know, and has been a VP of sales, a sales consultant, is a mentor at a lot of other accelerators focused on sales. And it's one of the best people I've ever met at coaching founders how to sell. Um, and so we were lucky to bring her on and she runs the San Francisco office now because I've since moved to, after eight and a half years in San Francisco, moved to New York to launch Accelerize in New York. Well, with a last name like that, she was destined for greatness. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so what about pricing? Pricing's another piece that like, how do you, how, as an entrepreneur figure out, well, what are we going to charge for this? Yeah, I would say pricing is one of the hardest things to figure out, um, especially at the early stages. And as, there's never like a really right answer. Um, I would say almost every single company we've worked with, which is now like 80 something, realized at some point later on in their life cycle that they could have charged more than they did in the beginning. It's just, it's the natural thing to not charge a lot because you wanna like reduce friction as much as possible in sales in the early days. Um, this is one, one kind of trick I use now, which I actually, I think I got, I think I learned from Teen at Zora. Um, is just like a very quick kind of back of the envelope uh, way to look at it. Um, just to do like a gut check on your pricing in the early days is, you know, it, for a lot of VCs, they want to see an AE, you know, at series A stage or series B for an, for a company to have like a scalable sales process, they want to see an AE be able to book like four X or more their, their OTE. So like they're all in comp. Um, and so, you know, if you've, figure an AE is making, let's say, 100K all in, like, can they book 400K a year in new ARR? Mm -hmm. And then if you start breaking that out by month and by week, like, based on your average contract value, like, does that cadence of closing deals make sense? Like, based on what you've been doing as a founder and what the sales cycle is like, like, does it make sense? Like, if you have 40K uh, ACV is, you know, average contract value for a year, uh, you know, can you close basically one deal a month? Like, is that reasonable and for one person to do? And if it feels reasonable, then like maybe that pricing is about right. Um, but if it feels impossible or like there's no way you'll be able to do that, then you're probably not charging enough. Um, or you have an issue. <laughs> it's going to be hard to be scalable through that sort of model. Um, but yeah, that, that's one way to kind of gut check pricing in the early days. But it's definitely... Uh, I think one of those things where like everyone kind of underprices what they inevitably are able to charge in the early days. With the trend of like self-service, right? So just, you know, SaaS models and going on a website and purchasing, you know, low, you know, friction type of sales. Um, did you notice like a common trend of entrepreneurs just assuming that would be their sales model only to learn that, wow, we actually need to book meetings and demos and close the sale versus self-serve? Yeah, I mean, when you have technical and product founders, especially, mm -hmm. um, sometimes they have that mentality of like, we're just going to build an amazing product and people will find it and pay for it and buy it. Um, and, I, you know, I, that very rarely works. It can work if there's a lot of like virality built into the product. Mm -hmm. um, but there, you know, there's usually still some amount of like handholding during the onboarding process or making, you know, customer success style kind of, you know, uh, processes to make sure that they're actually engaging with the app. 
Um, but yeah, I think there's, you know, I, I, I've definitely seen that mistake, especially with kind of more technical and product founders. What about the marketing side? Um, so how, how do you advise, you know, founders as far as hiring, you know, at what point should they bring in marketing? How do they, you know, handle the marketing strategy initially? I mean, I'm sure it's not like we're just going to set up a landing page and we're going to get business. Right. So, um, how do you advise them on you know, building out, you know, the demand gen and, you know, just building out the funnel and general market awareness, the brand, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Well, so I think, it's tough to spend a lot of resources and hire someone in marketing before you've really figured out who your ideal customer is uh, and what the right messaging is to get them to buy, which is more of just customer development and having a lot of conversations with different customers and different people within those companies and really honing in on like, what's the messaging that's working and who's the right person to buy and like, what's the right pricing or at least like a, a sense of what the right pricing is. And then once you've started to figure that out, you've started to get some early customers, then, then like it start, it's, it's a time to start thinking about like, okay, now that we understand what the right messaging is and who the right customer is, let's build out a marketing strategy to find more of those people um, to then fill the pipeline. And that's when you can start thinking about investing in, in marketing and demand gen. But I think, you know, rushing into that be before you know what, what the right messaging is or who the right ideal customer is and um, what the right title to, to focus on, you know, selling to, like, I, I think it's just a mistake. Um, and so, so that's, that's kind of the, the timing uh, that we tell people is to like first figure out how to sell and who to sell to and what messaging is resonating with them before you spend time uh, doing that. And you can do that in a pretty sim simple way without having to spend a lot of resources on marketing to figure that out. Shifting over to you know raising capital. So, um, what like what are the common mistakes you see entrepreneurs make when they're uh, pitching their company to investors initially? Um, yeah, so I think it's it's a lot around. Uh, there's a few things, and and some of these are things that um, I would say I learned I learned from having spent some time as a venture partner with with Jason Lemkin over at Saster. Um, and you know, it's, it's a lot of like founders when, when they don't know their numbers, like if you're an early stage founder, uh, like you should be obsessive about sales and revenue and how many customers you have and what your average contract value is. And so when investors start asking founders about that and they don't know those answers, like that's a pretty big red flag, but I see it quite a bit, which is surprising to me. Um, so that's one, I think another is just, uh, you know, the, the founders who do really well fundraising are the ones who have a lot of clarity around the market and market dynamics and how the market's evolving and how, and then like a path to like how they fit into that evolving market um, and why they're winning deals or losing deals to competitors. Um, and so if you can't like clearly articulate the market dynamics and how the market's going to evolve and like why you're winning deals, uh, I think that's another kind of mistake founders make is like not, not honing in on that. Um, and so that, that's, that's another kind of mistake I see people make. And then there's, you know, more uh, just tactical things of like, you know, founders are told or read content all the time about like creating urgency and 
uh, creating deadlines, but some, I think some people, which is, you know, generally a good thing to do, but creating like artificial urgency by, you know, stating some artificial date that someone has to make a decision by and trying to rush people to make a decision. I think more times than not ends up backfiring for, for companies. Um, so that's another mistake I see people make. Accelerize. So how many programs do you have now, like different cities? Yeah. So we, we've been in San Francisco. We just started our ninth cohort in San Francisco. Um, and so we've invested in 80 something companies. Um, and then we launched our in New York um, and had our first cohort start in March there and finished fairly recently. And we ha actually have our second cohort in New York starting in September. So we're looking at companies now for that cohort. Um, and then we're launching in Melbourne, uh, Australia um, in early next year. Um, and so uh, putting everything in place for that, uh, but launch should be launching in kind of January of next year aligned with our next San Francisco cohort. Uh, and then we have a, a couple more, um, international cities, uh, in the works that, that we'll hopefully be announcing, um, you know, over the next six months or so. What's the entre entrepreneurial scene like in Melbourne? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, we, there's a lot of, um, pretty successful SaaS and enterprise software companies there. So obviously like Atlassian and then Canva is doing really well and Zero has a big presence there. And so there's a lot of, uh, it's a very up and coming kind of tech scene. Um, a lot of startups and very SaaS B2B heavy um, with a number of successful companies who are now have founders and, and, um, and early employees who have, seeing that like hyper growth venture scale type companies who can now give back to the ecosystem, whether it's as starting their own companies or moving to early stage startups or as angel investors. And so um, I think there's a lot of activity happening there. The government is uh, create, you know, is getting involved as well and helping with like, you know, a lot of great incentives and stuff to help spur a lot of that. And so um, I think it's a pretty exciting time uh, in Australia right now and, and very, the tech scene in general is very kind of B2B and SaaS focused, which uh, lends itself well for, for our focus area. I didn't realize Canva was from there. That yeah. Canva has just, uh, I think, changed, <laughs> changed everything for me as far as being able to do elegant design and not being a uh, you know, power Photoshop type user. Right. So yeah, um, like that, that application is just amazing. And, you talk about like viral, right? So I learned it from a friend. I tell everyone that they don't already know about it. I'm like, how do you know not know about Canva, right? It's such a beautifully designed, simple to use, high value, well-priced. I mean, just an amazing business. Yep. Yeah, it really is. I, uh, I use it all the time and I'm definitely not a design person. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mike. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing all your words of wisdom. Certainly excited to see what Acceleprize is up to next and obviously the, uh, the next group of companies that are involved in the New York City program. Thank you. Yeah, and no, I appreciate you having me on and um, excited to see Venture Fizz in, in New York and uh, you know, excited to see you know, what you guys are able to do there. Thanks again.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.